Hello, I'm Andrew from Aro Video in Wellington, New Zealand, and welcome to episode 10 of Back to the Disc Player, the Aro Video podcast. It's inspired by our Adopter Movie Scheme, which enables film lovers to purchase an exclusive lifelong affiliation with a title in our library, or an acquisition that we may not have. It's where I get the privilege to talk to customers about their personal connection to the film or films they've chosen to adopt, and for us to find out a bit about them too. Episode 10 is with Graham Cowley, who was a key player in the New Zealand film industry from the early 70s to the mid-1990s. This is a longer than normal episode because Graham's professional story spans six decades. First as a camera technician, an operator, a cinematographer and producer and he also enjoyed great success as an entrepreneur in the film industry and subsequently in the wine industry. He's someone who's very interested in storytelling and history and as he puts it he's someone who sees a problem and tries to find practical solutions. But there's a twist in this particular tale which was ironic and very unfortunate and was by no means any fault of Graham's. I experienced what you might call the podcaster's worst nightmare. I kid you not, after about an hour and a half of interview with Graham early one morning, I checked the running time on the sound recorder that I'd borrowed from my colleague's Fender to see that the record button was on standby and the timer read 0.00.00. The interview had gone unrecorded and had disappeared into the ether. Expletives and awkward apologies followed, but nothing to dislodge the feeling at the pit of my stomach. Graham was a gentleman about it, as he is with everything, and was willing to come back a few hours later to repeat the conversation. But as you can imagine, it was very unsettling to think of some of the magic moments of the conversation that would never be recovered. But on the upside, we did get to talk a lot more about Utu and the late Jeff Murphy than we did the first time around. So this one will be of particular interest to those of you interested in New Zealand filmmaking, as Graham was at the epicentre of many iconic New Zealand films and had a direct hand in countless others. I hope you enjoy the second take of my conversation with Graham Cowley. So here we are again, Graham, take two of our interview. Um which uh, thank you so much for coming back and redoing the interview. Um, it's luck- lucky we have enough uh, of a relationship that you will forgive me for my, my, my technical sins, which is particularly ironic considering you are, you've made a career out of technical know-how. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's, it's a good example of that the digital age isn't flawless. It's not. It's only as good as its stupid users. Anyway, um, it requires the record button to be pushed twice. I, uh, I subsequently learned the hard way. Um, so anyway, feeling a bit strange, um, but um, let's see if we can improve. Um, it's either going to be better, or I can. if it's not better, then I can always say, well, you know, they missed out on something special, you know, the first time. Um, so, um, Graham, I, um, we, we've, we've worked together um, and, and had quite a few meetings over the years uh, on our production of the Utu Redux Blu-ray and DVD, and I remember um, first uh, uh, seeing you uh, in the store and uh, when you were releasing the film uh, at the festival back in 2013, and I was... Uh, I kept quizzing you uh, about when the DVD was coming out, 
and uh, and you kept saying, well, I, I'm uh, I'm in no, I'm in no hurry, but uh, I haven't released a DVD before, and I'm not quite sure how to go about it. Got any tips? Um, and so um, a year or so went by, and I and I was still hassling you, and um, you said, well, let's go for a coffee. Uh, and talk about it, pick, pick my brains for what they were worth, and um, three hours later, um, I was distributing a film, which I kind of didn't expect, but I thought, here's, a, here's, a, here's an interesting project, here's something that will um, break up my uh, routine, so thanks very much for that. I did very much enjoy our, um, our collaboration, um, and thank you for giving me that opportunity to, to do something different. Well, it was somewhat of a first, I think, that uh, doing a collaboration like that and, and releasing our own DVD and Blu-ray. Yeah. And the reason we did it is we didn't want... Well, there was no money in uh, getting third parties to do it. The ticket that was clipped was too big. Yeah. We thought yeah. that yeah. there would be more ticket. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah, and I thought I knew what wasn't. I was doing, <laughs> even though I'd never done it before. Uh, I learned a few lessons, but overall, I was pleased with the result. But there are always takeaways that you think, "Hmm, um, could have done that a bit different." But um, it didn't help at the time that um, when on the on that week of release, there was some adverse publicity about the precariousness of Aro Video's future. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but anyway, um, good to have you here upstairs at Aro Video uh, on the podcast and um, plenty to talk about. You've had a long and illustrious career. Uh, in fact, you've had really three careers. Uh, first as a, 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 a camera operator and cinematographer, um, also as a... Uh, uh, an entrepreneur and and um, business owner of a of film facilities, a um, film hireage company, and later on um, successful foray into the wine business. So let's get on with it. Right. <laughs> um, I must uh, just go back to the Utu uh, DVD Blu-ray again. Is what was great about your involvement is that we did what we intended to do with the restoration, which was to make the film available again how it should be and freely available out there. And having it on DVD and Blu-ray was made it freely available, stretching out and is still continuing. So people can buy it. And, hmm. and you know, last week, hmm. uh, the cinematographers uh, that I was speaking to hmm. were buying copies. So... Great. Was there a screen, it's screening last week? Still a future for DVDs mm. and things. There is no replacement yet. Yeah, sure. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it is back to the disc player after all. <laughs> <laughs> so that went well. Your, your screening of Utu last week. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was a good night seeing a film showing them how we did it and. Uh, mm. uh, oh well, we can. We, we, we'll answering talk. questions about sure. the old days. Yep, yep, yep. Um, now, speaking of the old days, I guess my first uh, uh, contact with you prior to you being a customer who I was hassling and hustling um, was um, a good friend of mine. You're actually his uncle. So uh, I, um, uh, I, I kind of uh, uh, was very interested in, in, in that, particularly as I remember seeing a, uh, an advert for Sleeping Dogs when it was released in 1977, 
you know, the second to back page of the Evening Post being advertised alongside all of the Hollywood films and being rather proud of that, that people were talking about it very positively. And, uh, and I subsequently learned that, um, that Neil's uncle uh, was heavily involved in that uh, film with Roger Donaldson. So you were, um, that was where you were kind of cutting your teeth on that film? Well, Sleeping Dogs was the, um, the first uh, renaissance um, film industry film that was done, uh, Roger Donaldson's Sleeping Dogs, mm-hmm. um, that uh, was shot about 76, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, there had been, between about 74 and then, there had been other forays into drama by Roger and uh, I shot some of a series that he did with Ian Mune called Winners and Losers series. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, a little film called Nutcase that we did before, I think, Sleeping Dogs. Mm. Um, but Sleeping Dogs was a film that was um, meant to look like a real film, like an international film, and mm-hmm. uh, was approached in that way. So what, what gave Roger the bottle to kind of, uh, you know, go toe-to-toe with an international production? Where they just felt that they were ready to it, step it up? It was the time, and uh, they had a good script, hmm. um, and um, they uh, they managed to get the finance. You know, hmm. it's the, the mm-hmm. three um, three things that you need. Mm-hmm. We were uh, the progression from you know the seventies on, or the whole progression of the independent industry has has been to had been to move into feature film production mm-hmm, until mm-hmm. tell our stories some mm-hmm. so truly the, our own the, stories. The mini feature Nutcase, which preceded Sleeping Dogs, was like a kind of a, a dry run? That, uh, that was a children's um, film, um, and, or featurette, I suppose. You yeah, for television? It. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, that would have been its home. I don't think it was ever released. Right. Uh, it was a fairly innovative production. There was a lot of in-camera work that was done mm-hmm. yeah. um, by Jeff Murphy and Alan Bollinger. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a similar background in a very early on in my days at Pacific Film and the films in the late uh, 60s. Uh, we did a lot of work uh, in, in multiple exposures, in-camera effects, um, right. uh, glass shots, mirror shots. Because it's a sci-fi fantasy comedy nutcase. Uh, yeah. Nutcase was, yeah. and, and all of those techniques were very applicable. Um, re- reverse action, you know, people crawling around the, the roofs yeah. uh, using models to do that and all yeah. that sort of stuff, which yeah. we were familiar with and it was part of the fascination of of a lot of us in that early time of filmmaking because it was you know a real kiwi sort of stuff yep. that we could do things that looked yep. uh, amazing but uh, were relatively cheap and easy to do yeah, and sure. they're techniques that, that that you can still use today and and are sometimes but most people have uh, forgotten those but nutcase used a lot of those um, those effects yeah. So you were second unit on Sleeping Dogs uh, for, for cinematography? Uh, when your... Sleeping Dogs came along, yes, it was shot by Michael Saracen, mm-hmm. who had op- worked overseas since he left Pacific Films mm. many years before and had made a couple of 
fairly major features um, or photographed a couple of major features before then and was doing a lot of commercials. He came over and was the director of photography um, and him and the the camera equipment actually was Panavision. So we had this sort of international involvement there. Um, but the, the the crew was Kiwi. So it was a really good mix um, mm. and, and learning exercise, I suppose. Mm. Um, uh, the Kiwi side of it tended to be the uh, pyrotechnics, the explosions. We mm-hmm. weren't allowed to import guns. Right. And so uh, Jeff Murphy and the Acme Sausage Company made those and did the explosions. Sure. And, um, yes. So there was a big Kiwi element to it mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. uh, all of which you couldn't do today because of, mm. uh, well, it the, wasn't entirely without risk. As I learnt as a yes. second unit camera on the right, film, sure. <laughs> it, I learnt what uh, it was like to... Um, be very, very close to a 44-gallon drum full of diesel when it was ignited mm-hmm. um, or detonated to look like an, an up-arm drop, and we tended mm. to get a little bit closer than we needed to sure. at the beginning. So movie-making today is very different from then for a number of reasons. Safer. That being one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. So you were... Um, uh, so prior to this, getting involved uh, with Roger Donaldson and uh, and the feature films, you uh, worked with Pacific Films with John O'Shea. So going back to the uh, the sixties, uh, that was something that you. Um, uh, how did you you drift into that? Well, I got in. I was, I was interested in photography, and I took a lot of stills. I had a dark room in my sort of high school years. Um, at university, I um, uh, got interested in movie, and I think that was stimulated by seeing John O'Shea's films. I did see um, Runaway and Don't Let It Get You during that time, and, and I realised that, ah, you know, like you, there was that was an industry that I could be part of, and uh, uh, just the, the movie element interested me... Um, more than the straight stills element, I suppose. Mm. And mm-hmm. at university, I did. I bought a camera, um, a, a Bolex, um, and we made some films. We were they were they were film exercises essentially. But mm. but there were three that were finished as films. Um, and in sixty seven, nineteen sixty seven, the student. Um, New Zealand Student Arts Festival was held in Canterbury and that year they decided to include a, a student filmmaking screening mm-hmm. in the proceedings and we went along there with our films. Mm. Now that initiative was um, was uh, John Reed's, um, mm-hmm. uh, who was at Canterbury at the time. Mm. Uh, and he invited John O'Shea along to be the guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And so we all showed our films. It was the first time that students had connected with one another, looked at one another's films, and um, and started a, a bit of a network. Mm. Uh, 
This is John. John Reed has just um, written a book on Pacific Films history. That's right. He he worked for Pacific Films for a period and made some films with John O'Shea uh, Mm. after me. So um, he knew the whole history and spent five years on Mm. writing a magnificent book. I would Mm. recommend to anyone that's certainly Mm. working in the industry, but also. Other people, you don't mm. have to have had an experience at Pacific. It is really mm. about the quest to create an independent industry and mm. tell our stories mm. uh, rather than just be on the receiving end of sure. American or international Indeed. production. I should invite John on this podcast, and uh, I haven't actually seen, idea, seen actually. his book yet, um, to be honest. Um, so that will be interesting to uh, to look into. Um, so Pacific Films, they had those uh, that, that trilogy um, of early feature films in the in early 60s. And, and then they, um, but largely they were uh, an independent film production company that were um, kind of uh, an option or an alternative to the, the film unit and the government-controlled body. That's right. At, at that time... Um uh, the film industry was was really a government industry. Um, at my time at Pacific, the National Film Unit made the tourist films for the tourist and publicity, publicity department, hmm. uh, selling the country um, for tourist and publicity. Hmm. And uh, television uh, did a similar exercise internally. Uh, Pacific Films was one of the very few independent companies at that time. They had grown out of uh, John O'Shea's first feature film, which was Broken Barrier, mm. and uh, which he did with Roger Myrams. Um, but Roger Myrams moved to Australia, and, and John John continued on and kept the company going, and uh, mainly with commercials and industrial films uh, during my period there there was a lot of those and, mm. and the staff built up quite a lot but his continual quest was for our industry telling our stories and to do it independently away from government influence mm-hmm. yeah so their um, their client clients would still be government government uh, clients though. I mean, there there is uh... for us there were some government clients. Well, there's things like the road safety films um, that we mm. did uh, films for the education department, mm. but um, also for various companies, oil companies, um, and, and well, all the commercials all mm. today. Um, the same sort of people and food and. Mm. Hmm. And uh, consumer goods generally that we did. So. Yep, yep, yep. So your Pacific Films stint, you, you know, you were uh, that was your first professional job uh, in the industry. Yes, yes. Yeah, this is uh, before you went to England. Y- yes, John. Um, at that student screening, John had um, offered me a job at Pacific Films, um, which I readily accepted, and. Uh, I had shot quite a lot of film. He could see that I could shoot. Hmm. And I um, I photographed a film I, yeah. uh, in my first couple of weeks. There's a crew of two. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Bob Cutton and myself, and we, we travelled to Auckland with a camera and a bit of gear, and we spent a week or so uh, doing a lane and motorway driving film, right. so that New Zealanders how to, knew how to behave on our first <laughs> motorway. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. And I've seen the film recently. I'm quite quite proud of it, really. You know, mm. did the mm. job. Mm. So uh, although everyone started at the bottom, I actually started uh, as a cameraman. Uh, yeah. Early on, um, mm. so that was yeah that was my uh, my first industry experience and went on and and, and um, directed a lot of commercials and, and got involved mm. in that um, and Pacific evolved. Uh, uh, Tony Williams came back from England and he started doing some work that got inroads into television. Mm -hmm. So um, mm. it was a, a crucial time in the, in the development of the industry that when I was there. Mm. But, so but, Tony but the time became... came for me to go over to England as well, as, yeah, as sure. we all did in those days. Right. Bit right, of right. OE and... and um, mm -hmm. Working in the industry there was always attractive because at Pacific Films we... We were always getting feedback from those people that had worked on the early films, the young people, a wee bit older than us, mm. uh, who had worked on Runaway and Don't Let It Get You, um, and went and, and had quite a lot of success in England. So that was always in our mind. Right. Mm. Um, mm. We heard all their stories. Mm. Mm. And given that there was, uh, there was a fairly threadbare industry here, apart from those commercials and... And uh, industrial films, you mentioned. That's right, because um, we... Uh, at Pacific Films, uh, we had really interesting morning teas, uh, mm. uh, which were really discussion seminars with John O'Shea, and it was really about the politics of the industry. So, mm. so as our time with um, Pacific grew, so did our attitudes of where we would work in the industry. Right. And so it really, for mm. me, working for the government was not an option. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I had an independent approach. Sure. Would, so would you going say, overseas was the key. Mm -hmm. Did that extend to an outsider think? status, do you think, at any stage? I mean, was there a... I mean, Pacific Films... Did you, do you, see, did you see yourself as a kind of an independent spirit before joining... With Pacific Films, or was it? Uh... Oh, I don't think so. I think at that age, you um, you, you go to where what the you attraction get. is. Yeah, right. Yes, <laughs> sure. That's right. Sure. But once you were in the uh, in in the Pacific fold, there was a certain yes. sort of philosophy or way of looking at uh, at the world and the. Yes, and I think you know, like I was attracted to Pacific because of the films that they that I had seen that right. they were making, and so I did did know the difference between mm. the film. And I, no. you know, everyone saw the um, National Film Unit films, and they weren't quite as exciting. Right. Well. Yeah. Yeah. As so there was well, that I'll, I'll choice for a start. Then. I'll be talking to Hugh McDonald next, so you know. Well, I, I, he will I, tell I, you the other oh. side of the story. <laughs> 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 no, well, Hugh very much was um, uh, a friend, right. and and we all knew one another at that time. Right. Um, yeah. 
he uh, the divisions f- from his point of view, I imagine, were a lot less. For us, it was quite a, mm. uh, you know, there was a quest that all of us sort of had. Yeah. Um, also, mm-hmm. the other thing about Pacifica's um, and being an independent is equipment. Um, the government could import whatever they wanted, but we couldn't. Uh, we mm. had to get import licences, which were restricted. You could only mm. buy equipment with uh, overseas funds, and there was none of that. Mm. Um, so really, uh, we I used to shoot um, 35mm black and white commercials on a... Aeroflex camera that supposedly had been picked up in the trenches and smuggled back to New Zealand. Right. Um, so it it was difficult. I lobbied while I was there for equipment. We got our first thirty five mil ten to one zoom while we were in the middle of my stay there, mm. because up until then on thirty five we used to if we wanted to do a zoom shot as part of commercial we used to have to drive across town or arrange it beforehand, uh, drive across town to Peach Weems, which was another small, you know, with a staff of mm. two, I think, or three mm. at that time, uh, uh, independent film company, and borrow their Zoom. Right. It would be driven back by the production assistant. We would do our Zoom, Zoom shot and that would be it. Yeah. So we, um, those were the constraints. Mm. So um, we did manage to import a 10 to 1. Mm. Um, but then we had problems with the, the long end of that when we put the extender on to do you know 500 mil or whatever. Um, uh, you needed a fluid head. Right. And mm. It was very hard to mm-hmm. do smooth shots. So it's one uh, step forward, one step and, back. And, well, yeah. But we did get a fluid head for that. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but it was mm. it was difficult. So for me, going to England and an industry that was developed mm. was. Mm. You know, yeah, just sure. an obvious choice. Sure. So your time in England, uh, that was really a, a bit of a, um, a, a watershed for you because you returned from there kind of with a, with, you know, armed with uh, a whole bunch of equipment. Is that right? It's yes. Yeah. And uh, and sort of broke the stranglehold that was here with equipment for independence. But mm. it wasn't. It didn't just happen like that. We were mm. there for three years. One reason for going is that I'd just got married, uh, and fortunately when I went to England, um, I found out that it was much more difficult to work in the industry there because of the ACTT, the the industry union. Mm. You are not al- allowed to work in the industry unless you were an um, industry member, um, and you weren't allowed to be a member of the ACTT unless you were working, so it was a catch-22 but I, mm. I managed to get a job that um, no one else wanted, mm. and uh, it was a job that could extend a little bit. So I did did get into the industry uh, a little bit more and got my got my ticket, so I could freelance. But the key thing is, um, no one really wanted long haired Kiwi <laughs> wannabe filmmakers there mm. at that time, mm. but they did want qualified New Zealand nurses, which my <laughs> wife Linda was, right. so I could spend time making contacts and getting work. Okay. So it's, sure. it, and at the end of that, when we were coming back, or decided to come back, uh, 
when I visited New Zealand House and asked what I was allowed to bring back with me as far as any gear, mm. um, they happened to say, well, you're allowed to bring back your tools of trade. And <laughs> I said, well, what does, what's that? And they said, well, what do you use? You know, mm. and, you know films. And I, I said, well, we use cameras and lenses and tripods and mm. lighting. Wow. Um, yeah. And they said, well, you can bring any yeah. of those things. Yeah. And so... All of a sudden, I had the key to yeah. bring a lot of gear. Uh, I didn't have the money. Yeah. But uh, did you go on a, it's on a, a longer story <laughs> <laughs> about that. I did write to all the relatives, discovered yeah. I had a lot fewer than I thought. Right. Um, and I did, did I... How would the relatives help you? Well, yeah. I, I, there were the relatives by not replying right, right. <laughs> in most cases but no I did did get a little bit of money um, contributing contributed from that area mm. and then I joined oh, a, I joined yeah, yeah. a partner right, um, right, right. who was an English guy Nigel Hutchison who yeah. uh, was moving to New Zealand with, with a Kiwi yeah. girl that he had um, yeah. met and so you needed some cash quick so we, we did a lot of, of the situation. We, we, we hunted for gear and yep. we yep. bought a little bit and then we yep. sold it and we built it up, built right. up quite a lot of equipment. Mm. The, 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 uh, so it came back with you on the boat. That's right. 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 Um, well, isn't it no, interesting it was, though? It came on the boat. I actually flew boat. No. Right. <laughs> so isn't it interesting though that you can own? You know, legitimacy was only by being in England and 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 saying that you had your tools of trade and that gave you the the passport to bring it to bring yes. the stuff back. But if but you'd have no legitimacy under that very unfair and uneven playing field of the government dominating the industry. That's right. Yeah, it's extraordinary, it? really. Yeah, you know, that yeah, was protecting yeah. the government's um, yeah, organisations. Indeed. That's right. And it, it was changing. The government changed around about that time. We're talking, what, 63, I think we came back. Um, right. The beginning of 64. Uh, oh, so this is prior to the Pacific films. Uh, uh, 70, 70. Sorry. Yeah, 74. Sorry. No, I mean, it is. Yeah, yeah after. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm keeping track of the chronology. Yeah, here. that's right. Uh, yeah, we'll keep a track. You know, when, when there's a lot of lot of years. <laughs> True, <laughs> there is. To remember. Yes. Um, the so there was a change, and it wasn't long after we got back that the um, import regulations and those sort of things changed. But we. Right. Um, we, I don't know if we forced that change, but we certainly provided equipment and allowed people to leave those organisations and set up their own production mm-hmm. companies without equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and equipment that wasn't available here too. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. that so, was quite... Yeah, so a, a, upon returning to, to New Zealand in the early 70s, you... Um, you had this gear that was, um, you know, not very common in the country, and you so you already had a kind of, uh, you know, a, a small business that you started to run immediately. Well, we, you know, we were doing something that uh, hadn't been done. Um, mm. There was no clients essentially. Uh, there was a need, but, but mm. it was early, so we had to. Um, uh, use the equipment ourselves. We we set up a production company. In fact, the first company was called Motion Pictures, mm. um, 
and we ran the gear under that mantle as mm. a separate unit and you mm. know we published a higher book mm. uh, kept that separate booked right. it ourselves against people that we were quoting against and right. the advertising agencies and and we kept that very transparent that mm-hmm. that separation yeah so it was um, motion pictures Motion pictures and film facilities. That's right. Was, it, it was, was made into a separate company yes. fairly fairly early on, mm-hmm. um, but they were two distinct things mm-hmm. that that competed with. You know, motion pictures competed with clients, so we had to be very careful right. about that. But we needed to do that just to have enough money to survive and to build up the equipment um, mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Nigel and I went our own ways after you know six or seven years, um, and I took over film facilities and developed that. That was my project, my my thing that I had to um, yep. take mm-hmm. to its extent, uh, yep. and that allowed me to uh, work as a freelancer and freelance cameraman. Mm. Yeah, sure. Uh, was the logical yep. thing to do when you Indeed. had another job. Sure. So that took you through the, the Roger Donaldson with um, uh, Nutcase and then uh, Sleeping Dogs and then subsequently Smash Palace, uh, uh, which you um, which was the first film that you were the cinematographer. The uh, uh, So that was um, a step up from the camera operating that you'd done on Sleeping Dogs and Goodbye Pork Pie. Is that right? Uh, that's right, uh, of the features. But, of course, you were operating and lighting on all the other things you were doing. And we were doing mm. uh, you know, dramas, short dramas as well mm-hmm. during that time. So you were doing both. But in, on the bigger films, we did divide those roles. Mm-hmm. And um, on Smash Palace, it was... Uh, really good because I got to work with with um, Paul Leach mm-hmm. who's an excellent op- or was an excellent operator and, and sort of uh, rock at the centre of not only the camera department but the whole production mm. and that allowed me just to really to focus on the look of the film and it was very important for um, for Sleeping Dogs to do that For Smash Palace to do oh, that Smash, Smash, <laughs> Smash Palace, Smash Palace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um and pr- prior to the Smash Palace experience, you, of course, were involved in the other, one of the several iconic films, uh, and, and Goodbye Pork Pie was one of them. So you were the, the camera operator on that, and Alan Bollinger was the, the cinematographer. That's right, yep. 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 Um, I, in fact, on the um, on Pork Pie, I also had an involvement as... Uh, I was a co... Investor, because what we did on Pork Pie is we uh, put in our services for free. We, we worked. Nigel Nigel was the producer. Um, I was the operator, uh, and we supplied the camera equipment. Um, so that all went in as investment in the film, mm. uh, and other people did the same on sound. Don Reynolds um, did that with sound and. Of course, the Acme Sausage Company were providing all the, the grip equipment and the mm. crane and mm. stuff. So it was a total cooperative exercise that mm-hmm. at that time. And, mm. and it was the most cooperative probably because beyond that there was there was more 
um, conventional funding and uh, mm-hmm. mm. and there was the success of the films um, you know that people actually went to see them and uh, you know so there was a um, uh, you were lucky enough to be involved in some hit films you know you were not just kind of offering your services for free and hoping that you would get a return or you were, you know th- these were there was a momentum to what was going on that's right and well Jeff Murphy um, who sort of created and, and um, directed Goodbye Pork Pie he he, he um, one of his great talents is he really understood the New Zealand character uh, and and the script um, really reflected and and focused on that character in the right way, and mm. so he created a film that, for the first time, that New Zealanders could really, really enjoy and mm. um, identify with, mm. uh, and it, it it was just a fantastic um, success throughout New Zealand and and it went beyond New Zealand it sold to just about every country in the world um, and is still being shown uh, all over the place on airlines and things you know uh, still so it was a great success and that was because um, of Jeff just making a film that was our film, mm. you know, doing what John O'Shea, I suppose, was... Mm. Yeah, yeah, and not trying to mimic a... Uh, waving the flag for. Yeah, no, and there was no obvious kind of international model that they were, or formula, that they were trying to mimic and therefore, you know... No, made from it? the heart, I think you were once quoted as saying. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah no, well, it was. And, and Jeff um, and the blurter ensemble had been doing that as entertainment you know they'd been doing it with an audience so they had a good um, understanding of mm. performance live mm. performance mm. And, sure. and that came through into the, the film as well yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. so that struck a chord and um, mm. we uh, learnt a lot mm. from that mm. Mm. so the the um the segue into Utu, you know, which was only a couple of years later, was quite a different experience and quite a different uh, kettle of fish, well, would you say? That's right, because uh, in between was um, Smash Palace, of course, for me. Mm, all but, right. but Jeff's um, next film, when we, we heard that he had uh, the script, for, which was a very wide-ranging... Um, period piece set during the Maori Wars, um, it, uh, all of us responded to it. You know, we knew Jeff, we knew his, how he loved the process of filmmaking and he was uh, innovative and um, liked to push the boundaries and, and that he had this quality of, of uh, mm. understanding the New Zealand character. Mm. Um, we all enthusiastically and joined and got involved with um, with Utu mm. which had been created during the time through the 70s Jeff had worked on it for about 12 years um, and it was the time of the rise of um, well the landlight movement really and with things like Bastion Point and mm. Ragland 
mm. um, the land march itself, mm. and the formation of the Waitangi Tribunal. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, the, and the Springbok Tour. And the Springbok Tour, mm. yes, at that time. So these were... These were the things in the background when Jeff was working on the script, and mm. and his um, uh, the central thing uh, Jeff had known for a long time. Very famous story from the Land Wars: uh, the story about We Heratonga uh, and his trial and execution, um, in which the lasting redress concept of Utu was carried out and Jeff had always thought that would be a great a great sort of basis for a film mm. so that was a starting point and that became the trial mm. uh, at the end mm. um, but he researched all the events leading up to that uh, true events and then um, came up with the script which was mm. uh, entertaining but solidly based on mm. on fact that all of those events happened mm. and the reality was much more horrendous than mm. what is in the film. Mm-hmm. So it was something that we, all of us could relate to. Um, mm. We went along, we came out of that period and it, we felt as though this was about us. Uh, it was something that we could do on a large scale. Um, we had the skills at that stage mm-hmm. um, and we embarked upon it. It so was, was a little bit more difficult mm, than we thought. Well, I was going to say, was, <laughs> was there trepidation around your ability to pull it off, given the scale that it was unprecedented in, in this country? And, uh, well, remember, we were young and enthusiastic and didn't hmm. look uh, towards the consequences too not, much. Not afraid of failure, or you just didn't? Uh, uh, I don't wasn't... think we were afraid of failure. There would have been big failure for the people that were uh, involved in the funding. Uh, we, would have, <laughs> we would have lost our income for a while. But mm. uh, so the the jeopardy we didn't mm. understand. We didn't think of things like career jeopardy. Um, right, sure. But uh, no, you, mm. we were just anxious to, mm-hmm. to to move to develop and move on, mm. like like mm. pretty much anyone was. Mm. Uh, when you look at back at it now, um, people are probably more cautious about mm. those things, but. Um, how did you find working with Jeff? I mean, he's recently passed away and we were both at his funeral. I think that was the last time I saw you in December uh, yep. last year. Um, how did you find uh, working with him, given his reputation as a, a bit of a loose cannon, as some people might have it? Well, I enjoyed working with Jeff. I'd worked with Jeff quite a lot, of course, pork pie, uh, where we had a, put a pretty close uh, involvement um, but also on other films, Jeff, Jeff uh, and Andy um, had built a crane very early on when they were doing their own productions, um, and that crane was really the first portable crane in New Zealand, and it travelled over New Zealand, and, and they used it to, you know, it was a business itself. Mm. So, so Jeff had been around. Um, most people had worked with them, uh, oh. and I certainly had in um, in Wellington. So we were pretty comfortable with him, and we enjoyed his humour. And oh. uh, there was always something interesting happening on set if Jeff was there, and mm. you were always pushing the boundary. You know, you're mm. doing something worthwhile. Mm. So we had no no regrets about working with him, mm. uh, and. Um, so he he had an inherent discipline, even though he might have. 
ostensibly been ostensibly been a kind of a, a rebel character. He he, he knew what he wanted, mm. um, and you know mm. he was a very astute filmmaker, mm. uh, uh, with an amazing. Uh, relaxed sense of fun but mm. he expected everyone else to mm. be focused mm-hmm. on what you were attempting but enjoy yourself you mm. know it was um mm-hmm. he was pretty single-minded at the top mm. of the and, chain of command and you, you were saying before there was opportunity for you to throw in wild ideas and he would be receptive to those Ideas? That, well, very much so. That was one appealing thing uh, about Jeffrey, and I remember it very clearly on on Utu, where he was. Uh, you would ask him, you'd give him a choice because we were up against it. You know, we were shooting in the middle of winter, mm. uh, in the rain and the cold and snow at mm. times in the the hills between Napier and Taupo, mm. um, a wild country, and we. Um, we, we we had to make decisions about how to do things. Some some that weren't, you know, they were a bit, they mightn't work. Mm. But he would always say, you'd assess it and say, well, if you think so, you know, go for it. And that that was empowering for us. You know, it, it, it meant that you were very much part of making the the, the film uh, work. Um, mm. And feeling and like you're making what a, you wanted to, you were very like, much yeah. part of that key decision making. Mm. And there was one, um, the one scene, that, well, the key scene, the, the trial scene that we hadn't found a location for it before we started shooting. And so during the shoot, um, the location people would be, they'd find different places that Jeff and I had to look at, and we looked at a, a lot of little posits in the bush. Uh, and uh, we were getting towards the end of the shoot and we hadn't found anywhere. And then one day um, they told us about this place which was about a half an hour walk in from the road into the bush and Jeff and I went in there and uh, that was this magnificent sort of clear patch in the middle of the bush and we just both said this just feels right. And mm. And, uh, you know, it was definitely the place to shoot, but we were aware it was Mm. a big distance from the road and there was a lot of logistics. Um, And so as we walked back um, to the road, we discussed it. And I I had seen uh, Days of Heaven before that, where there was one whole scene, just firelight, and I'd always been fascinated by that. And I, I sort of said to Jeff, well, look, we if we can't get lights in, we'll light it with firelight. You know that's mm. how it would have happened. And he mm. said, "Oh, you reckon you could do that?" And I said, "Yes," um, without thinking too much. But we did discuss it more, and we decided we could do that. Mm. And, and we did. Mm. What we did take generators in as working lights, um, for working lights. But the key lighting is mm. all done by. Uh, the the big fire that was the centre of the whole trial area, mm. and we um, put gas bars in there so we could control the intensity of the fire, mm. and we uh, built big reflectors with gas bars in front, mm. so using gas you could mm. dim them and control them. You had so a permit for all this? 
No, no, no pass <laughs> in those days. Didn't yes. think so. Yeah, in the middle of the bush, mind you, it was pretty wet. Mm. Nothing All was right, going to sure. okay. really ca- catch fire. And you were cold. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so anyway, we did it that way, and it was quite a big risk. And uh, Jeff just went with it, and, and I thought that was fantastic. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it. I didn't think that towards the end though, because another. Uh, area was that we needed to move the camera when we were in the bush because otherwise bush looks just one dimensional and and mm. we need it well we need it three dimensional so you you use tracks and move the camera as much as possible and that was very important in all the battle scenes mm. and uh, there was just no way that we could lay tracks the conventional tracks we had and mm. dolly and things because of the time but I had heard about the steady cam and um, there was one in Australia, the first one, because Garrett Brown, the inventor, his operator was an Australian. And, mm. and so we managed to hire that and bring it over. I'd told Jeff about that, and he said, yes, that sounds good, you know, go for it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and so we brought that over. Um, uh, there was People were sceptical about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was fantastic when we used it for the main scene that we mm-hmm. wanted to, which was the um, battle in the bush. But then Jeff decided to use it for the trial scene, and that complicated the lighting and the, mm. you know, the whole way that well, the mm. fire lighting, uh, shadows, and depth of field, and all yeah. of those issues. So I. I did regret that decision at that stage, but mm. um, we made it work, and mm. it really is quite a special scene in the film. Mm. It is sure. it gives it a rawness. Um, yeah, well, the whole uh, film has a, has a visual sophistication, you know, which I think makes it hold up to this day, you know, and forevermore. You know, it really did um, raise the bar, um, you know, on what was being made at that time. Well, I mm. think yeah, I think the difference is that we we made sure you couldn't get a sense that there were lights outside the frame mm. that that it was what mm. you saw is what was mm. lighting the scene sure. and yeah. before that, well we, we did a similar sort of thing in um Smash Palace of course. Mm. Um that was the approach too. Mm. Uh but before that, it, there was an, a television approach where you know you needed lights, so you just put them in. Whereas mm. my approach mm. was that there were light sources within the mm. the set and, yeah, and take away and stuff. You couldn't put anything in that mm. wasn't explained by mm. that fact. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so mm. uh, we did that, and that was yeah, that was mm. it paid off. Mm. So you're proud of the the film? I mean, it's a kind of a oh well, yeah. At the time, although we went on, we were doing other things. I mean, but, particularly proud is what I really mean. Uh, ah, yeah. well, well, I am mm. now, but, mm. but there's lots of other events um, mm. before that because we mm. never really saw it properly until mm. the restoration. Right. But uh, I, I was, I think, all of us, um, the heads of Departments like myself, um, Ron Highfield, the designer, um, all of us in those areas had been working in the industry for quite a long time. And uh, U2 sort of represents or the biggest budget. Um, 
of of that first lot of films and uh, uh, the best use of knowledge and Kiwi ingenuity mm. and mm. after that a different thing happened. The industry got uh, uh, too organised, it got a little bit of bureaucracy that came in, people, uh, of course there was the tax change mm. in the tax rules and and that caused mm. Mm. Uh, a type of uh, a rule-based systems mm. being being put on filmmakers. So in a way, Utu is, mm. it was the end of that first period. It shows yep. what could be done then. So it's it's yep. great to have been part of that sure. and and involved in well all those key key films. I think mm. of those of that era. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the film was cut. Uh, the negative was cut, pulled apart, and um, uh, made into a, a different version for export. Mm. And then, you know, like that was shocking enough. But then uh, it was forgot, forgotten by the powers that were in charge of looking after our films and our heritage for thirty years. Mm. Um, and that was that was unforgivable. Yep. Yes, and we can talk about that <laughs> later. Mm. Um, and mm. I got involved in mm. in the film again all mm. that time afterwards. Sure, and that was when you kind of you and Jeff worked on it together, restoring it, and and realised that there was something special there that you'd kind of forgotten about. Well, I think we we all knew there was something special about it. Um, mm. From uh, Jeff's point of view, he had, after that, he had not been able to make another film. He had written another film, but but there were people in the industry and in the bureaucracy of the industry were treating him like everyone else mm. uh, and questioning his credentials, really, I think, and he just uh, was mm. a time for him to go overseas, mm. so he went to the States. Mm. His time in the States... Um, he made a lot of films during that time, but he, um, well, as he has said clearly afterwards, he, he always thought Utu was his best film. Mm. But but when he did come back, it had gone. It didn't exist, the mm. original film. Right. Um, and it was a chance uh, of me flicking my eyes at Māori television um, and seeing some black and white strange format images there that I was fascinated by because they were about sort of Maori war sort of stuff but then I realised that it was more familiar than that mm. it was Utu and it was in a shocking state you couldn't mm. recognise it and mm. um, and as these things happen within a week I just bumped into Jeff who was not well at that stage and was very despondent about um, his legacy in New Zealand, mm. I suppose, or yeah. in, and mm. about U2. And I sort of said I'd seen it, and you know, did he want me to um, see what could be done about the condition of it? Mm. He didn't have any hope mm. um, that that could be done because of the history. But with a little bit of work, I discovered discovered well the, the, the tragic thing that the original negative had been disassembled mm. but um, 
managed to, over a long period, over a three-year period, to put it back together again. And that process, what we did right at the very beginning, was we put all the versions on a uh, editing machine, sitting down with Jeff, the original editor, Mike Horton, myself, mm. um, and went through the whole film uh, and uh, cre recreated the original version, um, uh, but improved on it uh, as we went. We didn't change much, as it turned out. Um, mm. We had to, you know, create shots. A lot of the big, long crane shots, tracking shots, had been cut in half, and we had to create lost frames and things. Mm, sure. Um, a huge amount of work, mm. but we um, we put it back together, or Jeff put it back together the way that he uh, wanted it now. You know, mm. so it's it's mm. the original film, but better. And, mm. Um, mm -hmm. So the the film um, has something in common with the uh, the film that you've chosen to adopt in the Ari Video Library um, um, for. Um, for one of a number of reasons, um, one being uh, that it's also reduxted uh, and somewhat <laughs> influential uh, in that process on uh, on Utu. Uh, can you tell us what you've chosen to adopt, Graham? And I I have chosen Apocalypse Now, um, which has two versions. It has the original <laughs> version and the redux version. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and, and really, with Utu, when we were doing the restoration, um, we had become aware that there were three different names for the different versions of Utu. Mm. Uh, people referred to the original sort of cut bit and, and the prints that were left as the original. Uh, there was a, a director's cut and then a, a something else name, and we realised we had to separate this Jeff's recreation of it. And mm. I had always remembered the, the, the word redux um, mm. that was used on Apocalypse Now, and mm. and that's what we settled on in the end, to, mm. to put that in the, 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 the title. So, sure. yes, there was yep. a connection there. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but um, I, I was looking, when, when you told me of your choice, I... Uh, I I looked at it um, and was puzzled a bit that uh, it's considered one of the greatest films ever made, and yet it was still available uh, to be adopted, even though we've had over 500 films adopted. So uh, I thought that was curious that nobody had um, put dibs on it first. So it was clearly meant to be, Graham, <laughs> meant to be your me. film. Um, but it also has a, a, you know, researching, and I actually had a look at a bit of Hearts of Darkness last night and been thinking about the film and um, and it's very much a, uh, a flag bearer for the uh, independent uh, filmmaking kind of um, uh, you know, quest uh, and, and uh, kind of to dream the impossible dream <laughs> somewhat. And uh, in, in Coppola's case, he managed to pull it off uh, even though it looked very precarious uh, many times over throughout its making. But I couldn't help but think that that somehow fed into your uh, uh, 
your independent spirit and that you could relate to that um, uh, in terms of its uh, the filmmaking process and um, to do because Coppola actually invested a lot of his own money in the film and was not really beholden to anybody so it's a really good example of what happens when someone is a director and a producer and a financier and when there's nobody saying no so it's kind of a a dream project, you know, it doesn't happen very often, and it was mega successful yeah, as well. Yeah. And it was about uh, those things of, of uh, good and evil and um, personal passion, really. It, it's um, uh, Apocalypse Now chooses war, and, and the whole journey is up the Mekong. It's a, it's a it's a journey into the mind of of those things, good, mm. uh, good and evil, um, mm. on on a large into the entertaining heart of scale, yeah. the larger than life, you mm. know, with music and helicopters and mm. and outrageousness, mm. um, and and as a fantastic anti-war film, like a, for people of my age at the time when it came out which was 79 i think mm. um it um you know it was we had been through the well the, the specter of of the vietnam war we could have ended up there you know a lot of australians like us did uh, i was actually called up for the uh, compulsory military training they had a ballot system then and mm. if you'd gone through that um uh, then if the war had escalated, we would have been part of it. Mm. So we were very aware of all the happenings of Vietnam um, mm. in, in the, that period before. So the film was something that we, we sort of saw with that background as well mm. at the time. Mm. And and the filmmaking aspect of where we were, that was, mm. you know, we related mm. to that. As well. Yeah, I think I think there's another thing it shares with her too is is just a, a real um, a sense of authenticity that it feels lived in that there's real dirt underneath the fingernails of the filmmakers that made it, uh, uh, you, you know, the actors included. Um, so um, yeah, an enormous amount of risk and uh, and and in that case it, it paid off. Um, although when I was researching Coppola, I, I saw that his subsequent film. Uh, one from the heart, uh, pretty much uh, took the shine off that whole <laughs> experience, uh, um, which was uh, made for $26 million, this kind of um, art, arty uh, musical, yeah. and, uh, and it grossed $600,000. Uh, so, um, and, and Coppola spent a lot of uh, his post-apocalypse now career uh, clawing himself out of debt. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, yeah, he he certainly. Uh, I thought it was yeah a fascinating story that I'd kind of forgotten. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, and of course you know Zoetrope was his uh, independent film company. So so you know he he attempted to build something outside of the Hollywood system in order to have control, uh, and uh, and of course you know a, a double edged sword to say the least. Um, but um, yeah, there's no disputing um, Apocalypse Now's status. Um, Rotten Tomatoes kind of s summary says a haunting and hallucinatory Vietnam War epic. Uh, it's cinema at its most audacious and visionary, 
and then uh, generally regarded as a masterpiece of the new Hollywood era. And um, incidentally, it's uh, I love the smell of napalm in the morning is number 12 on the uh, AFI 100 movie quotes. <laughs> uh, I don't know how quite they rank, uh, rank those, but uh, it has to be said. That's a great saying. Um, I also thought it was kind of perhaps influenced itself by a gear wrath of God. I don't know if that's something that you've, you've thought uh, about, but it, 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 it's something it somewhere. I put it slam in the middle of Agia and, and Utu. Yeah. There's Apocalypse Now. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. It does, yes. Because that is another film. It's those, you know, where you go right to the, the, the depths of, of mm. human obsession, <laughs> yes. I yes. suppose. You do. Uh, there was a, a, not a great deal of purpose in Agia, yep. uh, but yes. <laughs> there's certainly... Well, yeah. and probably in Vietnam, there certainly was an Utu. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Another thing that occurred to me was um, uh, was the film The Lost Tribe, which I know you didn't have anything to do with. Uh, well, I but, did. Uh, oh, did you? Right, well, you probably hired the equipment. <laughs> I, I actually worked on it uh, for a couple of weeks. Um, it was a film that I couldn't do for some reason, but I did start it um, mm. until... The DP who was from Canada and a f- friend of John's mm. uh, did arrive. So yes, I I was getting into the movie, but I was mm. uh, my head was elsewhere, so it mm. wasn't. Uh, yeah, you know, I couldn't help but think yes, looking at Kurtz, uh, you know, played by. Marlon Brando, and and uh, and then remembering, you know, the Lost Tribe, which I only saw oh, yeah, recently for too, for, uh, for my interview with John Bache, and yeah. uh, and I thought, ah, that's where they got those ideas from. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. um, so just um, uh, so going back to your, your your film facilities and the business that you'd created, uh, uh, you know, hiring equipment to uh, to other film productions. And uh, and that really took off, and and then then you you built the production village uh, in the late eighties, was it? Uh, so there was a transition, it seemed, from you as a kind of a um, you know a, 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 a technical expert and also a kind of an artisan, you know, with your um, cinematography skills. But it seemed that the uh, you know your entrepreneurial wings were taking off. Um, well, right? I don't know if there's a transition. It was something, um, you know, the, the whole doing it for a start was that I've always seen problems and, and ways to solve them, I suppose, or search for ways to solve them. And, and so that was the... There was an obvious problem with no gear, and so I found a way to, to to get it. So that was fairly logical. And then all all along the way, it was just a matter of of developing that service in the appropriate way, the 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 aim, doing the aim, and um, there was the gear and people being trained to. Uh, keep the cameras on spec. We used to send people to Germany. We develop a very good relationship with with Aeroflex, the main motion picture world mm. camera company. Um, and and the technical side of things was always fascinating to me. I have a technical background. It's something that I've 
understand very well. So that was it's quite natural and incredibly enjoyable, and also innovation in that area, mm. uh, which is, is just overlaps into being a director of photography or, or working mm. on on set. You know, sure. everyone's it's very hands on and mm-hmm. innovative area, but um, the, the the industry developed and. What became apparent is that um, as the independent industry grew and got a lot of kudos internationally and and the attention of the government, um, that the government couldn't see us. You know, we were were hidden Hmm. in the suburbs and in the cities and in little rooms and whatever, active and and increasingly uh, 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 larger as a workforce. But the government would still perceive television and and the film unit, uh, probably more so television, as the experts, as, yep. as where to get guidance. And, mm-hmm. and also we needed um, to, as well as equipment, we needed other places, you know, we needed premises to, to go to that were a bit more predictable than putting, you know, just leasing stuff for a mm-hmm. production. So the the natural thing we'd talked about it for a while. Various uh, members of the facility area, um, but the concept of a production village where you had a building that that could be shared, that could be leased uh, in the city um, mm. in Wellington for a start. And so I found a, a, a building, and we did that. We. Uh, had space for ourselves, film facilities for that operation, and that was, you know, that kept it, uh, um, gave it consistency. Mm. And then we built studios and production offices and editing rooms and or spaces for other people to go in and organise those services. Mm. Um, so in the one place you could, you could make a film mm. uh, and make it independently mm. and make your choices, either hire the room and put your own editing room in or mm. or uh, th- there would be someone that has had their own room and, and all the mm. facilities there for you. So it gave that flexibility and gave us visibility to the government as, as something mm-hmm. separate. Mm. And that after Wellington, um, uh, there was Auckland because television moved to Auckland and the heads of... Uh, all the big companies moved up there, so the advertising uh, industry started to be focused there. So with that activity, we needed a similar thing up there. Mm. Um, you know, we had up there to have industry meetings. We we used to have to borrow the Television New Zealand boardroom, I think, mm. and, and mm-hmm. then we'd have a mm. couple of hours in there, really... Mm. Slagging mm. television, right? Sure, <laughs> secretly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit like your morning <laughs> teas at Pacific Films. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so we needed our space. Um, mm. Uh, mm. Uh, but most of all, we needed a, a standard um, uh, quality projection facility. We needed a theatre that we mm. could show double head films, uh, show mm-hmm. clients, or or. Um, mm. uh, um, you know, investors or whatever, uh, mm. and there was no facilities up mm. there. So we built a production village that had a theatre, Kodak, it was called the Kodak Theatre. They provided all the mm-hmm. uh, projection equipment. Yeah. Um, 
and we had a studio. Um, we had a sound recording studio. We had a coffee bar. We had mm -hmm. boardroom. We had uh, yeah. production offices. So it was a, a full facility um, mm. that was very valuable. Mm. Um, and an amazing building, mm. uh, the way we designed it, right, right in Fremont Bay, right mm, in the sure. centre. So very doesn't exist anymore. Right. They, yeah, like so many now. of those uh, <laughs> uh, production houses. But there was, you know, an, an awful amount of risk in building these facilities. Uh, you know, did you feel uh, trepidation or, or, you know, that you were biting off more than you could chew? I mean, were you growing at a at a uh, um, steady enough pace to keep control of... You must have been very busy. Well, it, you know? yeah, it was. You know? um, Did you get any sleep it, it, during it, this period? <laughs> no, it, we... It, the industry grew and we grew with it. Um, uh, we, I suppose we had to keep ahead to some extent, but mm. I don't remember uh, lying away at night about the big issues, uh, perhaps other people did, mm. um, but it was the, the the detail really probably that was the mm. challenge to to keep the mm. the service right for what people wanted, and mm. and, and I knew that if you gave if, if you created a service that people that was relevant, then yeah. then they would. Come. Yep. So, yep. and um, you felt confidence in the industry that there was enough buoyancy, that's right. and, 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 and all through know, that to, time, to guarantee your projections were pretty on the money, were they? Literally. That, that's right. Well, I did tell you a story back, but further that that early on, you know, we were there. There, there was um, we were hanging out there quite a lot financially, and because mm. uh, to to buy equipment, which was very expensive, um, mm. thirty five mil lenses sure. and cameras and things, and you, you, so you were making a gamble on the industry. But but I was working in the industry and and could understood it pretty well and where it was going, but um, we, we did have to borrow. A, a lot of money, and there was one day that uh, our accountant, who was a friend, that um, we were having lunch after doing some accounting things or something, and he looked at me and said, well, "Congratulations, Gan, you're you're a millionaire. Only one thing wrong. It's around the wrong way." <laughs> so, 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 so that was you're a negative millionaire. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. We we owed that much money, mm, um, mm. And, and that was relatively. Early on, uh, mm. actually, but you turned but, it around, right? <laughs> <laughs> At the end, we we managed to break even. That's yeah. certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so doing these things, it was just what needed to be done, mm. really, mm. and mm. and we developed. There's a lot of people on staff, but mm. that's. But there have been a lot of casualties, and you know, with the technical revolutions that have happened uh, in, in the film industry, with digital in particular, uh, and uh, the, the disruption. And so, a lot of people, some people, have got burned very badly through large investments in in, in, in equipment-heavy technical, uh, you know, setups, you know, to uh, help people make films and ads. 
you know, so there is there is a bit of a um, you, know, well, you, you well, got is. lucky to some degree. Yeah, well, that's right. Or we, you just we went started at the right time when yeah. the industry was growing, and uh, towards the end of it, like I sold that company in '95. Uh, it's it's the way things conspired. Uh, digitization were happening. We were involved in that. We were hiring out digital cameras and editing machines and those sort of things. Um, mm. Also selling them. We were agents uh, for them. Mm. So we were understanding that. And also the cameras were getting um, more um, electronic mm. and their peripheries and monitors and stuff. So mm. so we were entering that area. Mm. But also what was happening at that time is there was a lot of overseas production coming to New Zealand, mainly commercials going to Queenstown. And I used to monitor very carefully the, the graphs of, of where... Uh, our clients came from, you know, and, and grade them into overseas and local and Auckland, mm. Wellington, Queenstown, whatever, and mm. it really kept an eye on it. And uh, um, there was a very large percentage of overseas production that we were doing it, which I considered was our vulnerability. It was, you know, we wanted that expansion, but, mm. but my attitude was that we wanted to keep the proportion the same mm. uh, because it all depends on currency and incentives mm. and those sort of sure. things. And we yeah. had seen it over the period where suddenly people didn't come for a couple yes. of years. Yeah. So uh, yeah. for us to uh, have mm. a financial exposure, um, that was critical. Mm. So we did uh, those sort of things um, were in mind at that mm. time, just leading up to the um, mm. 2000, yeah, um, or in the 90, 95, uh, and it so happened we had an involvement with the main Australian company there that had a little shareholding in us, and mm. uh, a, yeah. a big takeover in London yeah. wanted to get a lot more, mm. more red on the map in this area of the woods, right, so right, we... Right. We were mm. under pressure. Um, mm. We held out. We were the last to hold out. The Australians <laughs> didn't. Mm. Um, but it, it was the right time to, you know, for mm. the next stage within mm. New Zealand. And, uh, it, you know, I, it allowed me to move back into the industry in a, in a different way. So, mm. Um, mm. yeah, it was time. Yeah. When you say back into the industry, you mean a different industry. No, which, well, into which, the, the the film is what I did. I've your, your always been interested in what in the stories, um, right? Uh, more so than the the well, the the visuals have always for me needed to serve the story and should for every mm. um, camera person. Uh, and, but developing the stories was was what I did. Oh, right. I, I spent yep. a couple of years in yep. developing feature films oh, and see, did right. develop two that to mm. the end stages. Mm. Um, but decided that you do chew up a, a lot of time and international funding is um, mm. a, a, mm. a, a, an unknown sort of art. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. A dark art. Yes. So um, one of those uh, projects went into development. The other, which was a better project, uh, had traction, big traction, two sides of the the globe. But uh, for 
silly reasons beyond our control of of our partners overseas they didn't it didn't go ahead and then the time was wrong so i decided mm. no i needed to do something else yep 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 and uh that was when you you started a third career effectively <laughs> well i got third involved life. in the wine industry mind you we started our involvement in the wine industry way back in university days of well course. drinking you know, it doesn't john count john bull's wine shop down in right uh, just off yeah. Willow Street, yeah. where we yeah, could yeah. go along with a flagon and fill it up. Oh, is that right? Okay, <laughs> I wondered where your inspiration came from. Um, but uh, as it happens, some of your uh, contemporaries in the business, like Michael Serizin, uh, Serizin Wines is a very well-known brand in Marlborough, and, uh, and Sam Neill has his uh, winery in Otago, I believe, and um, even... Uh, Oh, there was another chap. Oh, even Francis Ford Coppola, director of uh, Apocalypse right. Now. Yeah. He's into wine. So was that, um, that was partly inspiring in some, on some sub- subconscious level? From the other people, well, at, uh, subconscious level, yes, but I can't Unconscious that. level. Is it on an <laughs> unconscious <laughs> level? Um, the, uh, I, the, 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 well, it's, you know, I'm not quite sure. It's, it's, um, Wine was fascinating, particularly Pinot Noir and what was happening in New Zealand uh, at that time. And sure, there was Michael and um, uh, um, Sam and co who were involved or were getting involved at that stage, I think. Mm. Um, so, you know, I was aware of that. You said Roger was also, Roger Donaldson was Roger, also in wine. He was, well, yeah. Roger, yes, he um, he bought it about the same time as, hmm. as Sam. Yeah, hmm. they bought, that was two paddocks, I think. That was the other paddock. Hmm. So, um, yes, they, they were involved. So, yes, that was obviously in the background hmm. for us. And we looked at, right throughout New Zealand... Um, uh, Linda, my wife, had a, a smaller focus than I did. I, I uh, as I have said, my my oldest brother stole the family farm, um, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, so so I left high school without any. Uh, parents or any mm. money but survived right. but always mm. thought it would be good to have a piece of land to get your own square back. again and, yeah, and sure. my brother was a, yeah. a close friend of mine but yeah. uh, he did mm-hmm. what uh, yeah. I didn't think you, was you've the right thing. You've since forgiven him? Uh, well he's passed now um, right. yeah. but I f- f- Forgave him early on, but still there was he did. Mm, mm. <laughs> so, um, so the idea of of land and it had been a bit of a connection of my past for personal reasons, which I won't go into mm. beyond that. Um, so that that was that was in the background too, and I think it's in the background of a lot of people. It's it's um, it's a place. Um, mm. And uh, when we went to Marlborough. Um, uh, Graham McLean was there. He had um, found and developed Michael Saracen's vineyard down there. So, and I knew Graham very well. He had worked uh, mm. in the industry. I'd known him since Sleeping Dogs days. Um, and uh, he 
showed us what he knew about sites around the place, um, some of which he had found when he was looking for Michael's place. And he had done things, you know, he'd put thermometers on fences and farmers' places they didn't know about. And so he had Mm. quite a good Mm. sense of the place. um, He was a wine diviner. Yeah, sort of, yeah. (laughs) And uh, he took us one sunset to this place, which wasn't for sale, that he thought was magic place and that Michael should have bought. But mm. it was where no one was growing grapes. It was in the Southern Valley. Mm. There was no water there. It was, you know, entirely different from the Sabinot Blanc sort mm. of area mm. uh, where the first plantings were, all the initial ones. Mm. And we went there and it was just in a staggering place in amongst um, the hills, surrounded by hills, um, a lot of hills within it. Mm. Uh, this, this dramatic um, gully that, on a old mm. fault line that, that carved its way through the vent- centre of the vineyard. Mm. And it, it, it wasn't for sale. They mm. didn't want to sell it. Uh, it took a couple of years, really, mm. to... Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, but it kept calling us. Mm, you fell in love with it. And yes, mm, so it was, mm. there was a visual element to mm. to the place mm. um, that was quite special. Mm. There, but it was a big question of whether you could grow grapes there. Mm. However, when we did manage to secure it, um, we did find water and we found out from a local said something, oh, don't worry about growing grapes there. There used to be grapes there in the old days. And they said mm. that. And I did a little bit of research and I found that there was a very early colonial vineyard that had operated for a long time, a vineyard and winery in Marlborough, and then I found it was our the property that we'd bought. So mm. I knew that we had uh, some, mm. some land that had an amazing mm. history um, and that we had a story, you know, and, mm. and I suppose in that um, is why... Filmmakers can get involved with wine or do get involved because there is a lot of similarities in developing a vineyard um, or or even just operating a you know vineyard and winery mm. with film because you you have all the disciplines from from uh, the the engineering and irrigation mm. and other things within the mm. the soil, so it's 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 engineering yeah, sure. and science. There's and, an alchemy at work and mm. Yeah, mm. organic things, and then marketing mm. and finance, sure. and mm. you know it's 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 a project which mm. is very similar. Mm. So mm. it was mm. fairly. You know, fairly easy to just start at the beginning, and yep. and we did things that hadn't been done in Marlborough. Yep. And so again, exciting from you know appealing to your your enterprising instinct, you know, to build something from scratch and to 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 uh, you know go on your gut instinct, uh, to, you know, and uh, enjoy to, that uh, uh, that process of. Um, of growing something out of nothing, of, of and without the kind of the headaches of day-to-day business management, which I know you've re- referred to. Well, there's in, a, there's towards a lot the of... end of your tenure at film facilities. <laughs> That's right. We had a lot of people on staff, and and that was a distraction from the real issue, which was making films. I suppose. Mm. Um, but you know, like vineyard is a very um, stressful. Mm. 
uh, um, management issue. Uh, my sons uh, very quickly elbowed after we had done the initial development, um, elbowed mm. their way into being involved and they do it brilliantly um, mm. as a partnership, one being a winemaker and the other viticulturist. Mm-hmm. Um, so really that that mm. whole exercise was just, yeah, again, doing, developing a project and doing it as well as you could. Mm. Uh, and, and you know, mm. what I really got into was the history, uh, uh, uncovering that, rediscovering it. And um, I still do that. So it sort of it relates to what I have continued to do, well, and started to do before Utu, which is get involved in the restoration of those early films and, mm. and um, the, the archival side of the film industry, which I do spend time in at the moment, mm. again. So, mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, the name of the um, winery is Arnsfield. It's called Arnsfield, that was yep. the original name. Um, yep. You haven't uh, brought any samples along with you today? Uh, no, no, I didn't. No. Well, you, no. You, you have treated me to them in the past. <laughs> I just thought I'd, uh, you know, if you want a, uh, a super plug, you know, I could I could try some of your wares and, and tell you what I well, think. Well, you can. Uh, well, I, I will bring you some. Uh, uh, but more Wilson have... Have the the basic range there. Well, the basic range is the top range. The mm. wines are predominantly exported, so they're hard to find. Mm. They go into twenty five different countries worldwide, from mm. from wow. St. Petersburg to Bermuda, yeah. Um, yeah. and the countries in between um, mm. in top mm. restaurants. So yes, mm. it's Wonderful. it's um, good wine, respected. Mm. We had, we had uh, 40, 45, at least 40 masters of wine. Now, masters of wine are the experts, wine experts of the world. There's about 350. They have a 10-year, sometimes it's 20-year exam in London. Mm. We had 40 of them on the vineyard doing a tasting um, last weekend. Right, uh, okay, yeah. And a lot of them were yeah. saying that the most exotic tasting they had in my old barn, right. which I moved there from the Kaikouras. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, wow. Nothing to do with film. Yeah. No, or, but uh, but another wee <laughs> success story. So, you know, congratulations. You know, that's, uh, that's a pretty uh, impressive, uh, uh, you know, set of adventures you've had. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, very fortunate. Um, thank you so much, Graham, for coming in and repeating this interview. I can't <laughs> believe that you had to do that. Uh, but one would never know, given how patient and generous you are. So thank you so much for coming up and talking to us today. Perhaps someday we'll be able to find the first version buried somewhere within that tape. <laughs> uh, no, no it's, 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 it's lost. I mean, you'd have to be some archaeologist, I think. Yeah. Anyway. No, it's, a, it's, um, a, it's a pleasure to come here and just be surrounded yep. by all of these films. And, you know, we've been talking about two or three films, but do you look at all these films Look here. at them. That's right. So yeah, it's yeah. just magnificent. You can look at them. You, you can do. hold them. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, who knows, Graham? 
who knows uh, where, where it's on trucking, puttering. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. There was one element of Graham's career that was not mentioned until afterwards, and that was that Graham had started the industry publication on Film Magazine with Sue May in the early 80s, and that was designed to give the nascent industry a platform for information and discussion. And that lasted until, I think, well into the 2010s. So Graham has many strings to his bow in what amounts to an enviable career. I also forgot to mention that uh, when I was a young lad, I wanted him to give me a job. Uh, hoping to exploit my connection to his nephew, but uh, alas, it was not to be. Okay, before I go, um, a more sober announcement. Um, I have to reluctantly mention that uh, business uh, has gone from challenging to, to critical, as I've mentioned in our newsletter this week, and, and also what I call the Aro Video Survival Guide uh, 2019 which I've posted on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash arovideo. I won't read out the post in its entirety here, but the upshot is that I feel a sustainable model for our business can only be available to us if we can engage hundreds of patrons. Now, we changed the focus of our rewards on Patreon from products from our business partners to offering better value on film rentals. So, for example, if you're an active member, then for just US $25 per month you get unlimited film rentals, saving 19% off the in-store subscription price. Similarly, if you're not so active, you can support us by becoming an absent friend for $1 US per month, or a pen friend at $3 US per month. And to say thanks, we will reward you with a complimentary film rental once or twice a year, or once or twice a month, depending on the various options. So if you appreciate the cultural value of our service and collection, as well as our contribution to the community, we invite you to become a friend of our video at whatever level, and ask for you to discuss this with your film-loving friends, who might also be interested in supporting us. Don't forget you can also support us by adopting a movie for yourself or someone you know, and even adopt a movie through Patreon on a month-by-month basis. As always, I invite you to register your feedback about what you've heard through all the regular channels, and you can subscribe to this podcast for automatic updates through your preferred podcast app. Until next time, kakite anō.